we've been following Jesus through the last 24 hours of his life in our current teaching season, uh, series, and uh, we traced his steps from the garden where he prayed, not my will, but yours be done, to the cross last week where he cried out and died. And we're going to celebrate the resurrection next week. Um, yes, I know it's not Easter. It's all right. Celebrating the resurrection every Sunday. But today I wanted us to pause and uh, ponder what happened on the cross. Uh, we, we, we took some time to think about the fact that Jesus God literally died for us. All four of the gospel writers spent time, more time talking about his death than he, they do on his resurrection. We did that last week. Uh, but I want us to think about this week, what he did for us, what happened on the cross. In his letter to the first century church in the Greek city of Corinth, the Apostle Paul recapped his message of the gospel that he had proclaimed to them. And this is his summary. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, first few verses. Let, now, let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I proclaimed to you, I preached to you before. You welcomed it then and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Here it is. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had been born at the long time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I am not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. N.T. Wright, a present-day Bible professor, uh, put it this way, the story of Jesus focused particularly uh, on his death and resurrection is like a deep river. Many different streams have flowed into it, carrying uh, their own Silk, their own particular smell. The primary texts, though, are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they don't give us a theory. They don't give us an explanation of what happened on the cross. They give us a story. The Gospel or good news about Jesus is primarily the record of his death and resurrection. It's a narrative. So what did Jesus do for you, me, and all humanity on the cross? 
Well, we're going to do, uh, we're going to look at a portion. I started with a list of five. We're down to three. You're welcome. I realized this could have easily been a series of sermons, and I wanted to do it all in one day, so uh, I want you to come with me and see a portion of what Jesus did for us. I'm going to start with the, the one thing that I think we hear about a lot. I don't know about you, I think I've seen two or three versions, plus I've read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. In that book, there's, two, the, there's, a, there's a battle about to happen between the forces of good and evil in the book. Two sisters, Lucy and Susan, watch in this. Uh, this is battles commencing as hundreds of monstrous creatures surround Aslan the lion, the king of Narnia, the rightful king, and they tie him up and put him on a stone table, and the witch, who is their leader, approaches Aslan. Aslan is not resisting He's not fighting back. He just lets them do what they're doing. And the witch comes and approaches him with her stone knife, and the witch tells Aslan that he is lost. The witch says she's going to kill Aslan instead of Edmund, Lucy's and Lucy and Susan's brother, who's been a traitor. And she's going to kill Aslan instead of Edmund, as they've agreed. This sacrifice will appease the deep magic of, of Narnia. But she says, once you're dead, there's nothing to stop me from killing Edmund and his brother and sisters as well. Once you're gone, the witch says, I will be the queen of Narnia. Lucy and Susan cover their faces so they don't see the witch murder Aslan. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Corinthians, Christ died for our sins, as the scripture said. Jesus was punished for sinners. He took the punishment for sinners. The Apostle John put it this way in, in, in his first letter. He says, My children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. He died for our sins. For decades, we've been told Jesus came to make sure God could forgive our sins and take us to heaven someday. To quote a bumper sticker, which frankly I hate, but I've heard it so many times, and I know you've seen it, and I, it's been out there, so you, I, okay, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm not. 
perfect, just forgiving. Isn't that nice? I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiving. Thank you, Lord. You're going to find out why I'm not, I don't like that. Jesus did take the penalty for our sins. That is part of what Jesus did for us. It is, however, not the only thing that Jesus did for us on the cross. I think, no, I know, because I've been in several conversations over my lifetime with people who believe that's the only thing Jesus did. And I, I keep wondering, haven't you read the Bible? Uh, there's several other things that he did for us. Taking the penalty for our sins is part of what he did, but it's not the only thing. He did so much more for us. And like I said, there were so many things I wanted to put into this morning's sermon, but I'm going to hit two of the most important ones for us this morning, in addition to his. I want to talk to you, first of all, about caterpillars and butterflies. Some of you are going, I thought we were at the cross. Yeah, we are at the cross, but I want to talk to you about caterpillars and butterflies first. Uh, at this point in, uh, of the year and that we're at, we're in November, where have all the caterpillars gone? They're in cocoons, aren't they? Or yeah, cocoons, because it's a whole lot easier to say and spell. Unless, of course, they somehow didn't make it there and they are bird food. Okay, I didn't, that probably wasn't nice to say. Um, caterpillars are now in the cocoons. Has anyone, has anyone been curious and cut open a cocoon? Nobody else, nobody else has ever done that. Did it as a kid. If you cut up, if you open up a cocoon anytime between now and spring, you'll find nothing. I always expected to find a caterpillar taking a nap. Yeah. <laughs> you open up a cocoon, you will find nothing. The caterpillar is gone. next spring what's going to come out of that cocoon? Out of what appeared to be nothing. You're going to get a butterfly or a moth. They're kind of the same. Just different. Slightly. What is the difference between a butterfly and a caterpillar? There's a huge difference. But butterflies have legs and wings. Caterpillars are fat little worms usually. Some of them are hairy. There used to be a little poem about that, and all of a sudden I can't remember it. Probably a good thing. 
The Apostle Paul describes what Paul, uh, Jesus did for us this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. Caterpillars, old. Butterflies, new. This is why I'm not particularly fond of I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. I'm more than a forgiven caterpillar. If I am forgiven and following Jesus, I have been transformed into something completely different. I am a new creation. And if I'm a butterfly who still tries to act like a caterpillar, there is something seriously wrong with me. And if I slap a bumper sticker on my derriere as a butterfly that says, I'm just forgiven, there's definitely something wrong. Apostle Paul said it this way, I've been crucified with Christ in Galatians 2.20, by the way. I, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian life is not a self-help program. It is not even a Jesus-help-me program. It is not a life enhancement process. It is not a way of trying to find success. Christianity is a supernatural movement from, from darkness to light, from death to life, from empty to full, from broken to whole, from caterpillar to butterfly. I mean, I, I'm hoping you're getting the picture of the transformation that's supposed to be happening in us. We're supposed to be going from dead to alive. I mean, how much different can that be? And I, there, there's a whole bunch of counterfeit pictures here. I want to make sure that you don't buy into the counterfeit pictures. We're not talking about dead to zombie. We're not talking dead to Frankenstein's monster. We're not talking dead to vampire. We're talking dead to resurrected like Jesus. Keep expecting to see some lines blow. <laughs> Mine is. See, unfortunately, our problem is we want Jesus on our terms. We want Jesus to patch up our old life, make us pretty caterpillars, lively dead people. By the way, lively dead people are either zombies, vampires, or monsters. Not particularly a good idea. We, we want him to patch up our old life and make uh, our, our old lives work better. That's not the offer. That's not what Jesus does. The offer is, give me your old life and I give you a new life. The price is death 
of the old life, abandonment of the old life, and you get a new life. You may not be perfect in the sense that we use the word perfect. True. In the sense that you have no flaws and you don't make any mistakes, but as a Jesus follower, you certainly will be changed. You will be different. And if you aren't, you have every reason to wonder, am I really following? Do I really believe him? Do I really trust him? See, listen to this. Listen to what Paul says. Listen closely. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I no longer live. See, the New Testament is plainly and painfully clear on this point. To become a Christian is to die to the old life. Christ lives in me. This is a supernatural presence of God through his Holy Spirit dwelling in an ordinary human being. And this is not a one-time reckoning. It's not a one-time confession. This is an everyday reality check. Following Jesus means that I become a student of his life. It means learning to see how he sees, to think how he thinks, to speak how he speaks, and even feel how he feels. It is a complete reprogramming of our way of thinking and acting and relating to each other and to, to ourselves. To follow Jesus means to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It means to be filled with such a quality and quantity of love that it can't be contained or explained. Following Jesus means being possessed by his mind, animated by his spirit, infused with his power, and compelled by his love. See, following Jesus bears very little resemblance to just believing the right things and engaging in the right behaviors. The Apostle John puts it this way in his first letter, his first epistle. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. And in chapter 4, he says, just as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. Not someday by and by in the sky. As Jesus is, so are we. Following Jesus means the perfect love of God becoming completely at home in a perfect people like me and you. Transformation. 
possible only because of the cross. Paul goes so far as to say, I was crucified with Christ. 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem, when he died, the old me died. And when he rose, a new me rose. And now I'm trying to figure out how in the world does that new me live? And it's different. But there's more. But you see, one more thing. There was something that was common in, in, in the culture of the first century. It's not common for us. We don't see it. It is still practiced, however. There are places in this world where, where uh, folks are buying freedom for victims of human trafficking. Organizations are going and they're finding slave markets. And they've raised them up funds and they go and buy these people and set them free. And give them training and rehabilitation and, and, and help them so that they're not... It's a, it's a controversial thing. If you... I... I I Googled it. There's all kinds. Of, there are people who think it's a wonderful thing and we're making a difference in people's lives. Yet, and there are other people who are going, yes, you are, but at the same time, you're fueling the problem. You're becoming part of the demand in a supply and demand economy. So you pay the slave traders and they go, oh, there are people who will pay us. Let's go get some more people. And they'll buy us. And then they'll pay us. And we'll get some more people. And they'll pay us. And we'll just keep getting money. Because that's why they're in the business of trafficking people. That's an interesting thing. That was something. In, in the first century, there were essentially the majority of people were slaves. There, most everybody was a slave. We think of the we, famous people, Socrates, philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, they were actually slaves. People owned them. Seems weird. Was there were there were aristocrats and rich people and there were slaves. Very few free people on their own in Greek and Roman cultures. Occasionally, someone would ransom a slave, buy them, and set them free. Paul tells us that that's what Jesus did for us. See, that is a, a concept that's really hard for us to understand, isn't it? It's a picture that none of us... See, it would have been a little easier for, for a culture where near, many, many people were slaves to begin with. But for our culture, where, we, where, where we're proud, free individuals, it's going to be really difficult for us to grasp this concept from the 
from the Bible's point of view, we're all slaves. To sin, to death, to Satan, and hell. Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, he says, There is one God and one intermediary between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all, revealing God's purpose at his appointed time. John puts it this way. It's in Revelation chapter 5. This is far more uh, picturesque. That's one way to say He's having a vision. John says, I saw in the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne a scroll written on the front and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a powerful angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals, but no one was able to open the scroll or look at it. So, first of all, this is the throne of heaven, and the one who's seated on the throne of heaven is God. Some things in the visions are easy to understand. So, John says, I began weeping bitterly. Then one of the elders, one of the elders there by the throne said, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Thus he can open the scroll. He's talking about Jesus. John says, then I saw standing in the middle of the throne a lamb who had been killed. He came and took the scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders threw themselves to the ground before the lamb. And they were singing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were killed. And at the cost of your own blood, you have purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have appointed them as a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Your own blood, you purchased people. You bought us out of slavery to sin, death, and hell, and made us kingdom, kings, and priests. Serve our God. Yes, he died for our sins, took our punishment, set us free. But it didn't stop there. He died to transform us, to change us from what we were into what he is. He died to set us free from our sin, to our slavery to sin and death, to become kings and priests for our God. Jesus did far more for us on the cross than we may ever comprehend. There's a whole bunch of other things that I didn't even talk about today that we'll probably talk about again some other time. It looked like to everybody standing around, it looked like an, ultimate, uh, an overwhelming defeat. And it was a defeat. But it wasn't a defeat for Jesus. 
and he shares the victory with us. We can experience Jesus' victory and begin living in his benefits now. We don't have to wait for Sunday. See, to think of that all the benefits of what Jesus did for us is going to be someday out there somehow is a mistake. Jesus sets us free and transforms us to live as he lives now, here and now. So here's the sermon in the sense, sentence. Someday I will see Jesus and become completely like him. But until then, I'm committed to becoming more like him one moment at a time. Again, we've been talking, I shared from John's letter, first letter, first John chapter three now. Dear friends, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Someday I will see Jesus and be made completely like him. But until then, I am committed to becoming more like him one moment at a time. So the question comes to this. How ready are you to be transformed? by the Holy Spirit and filled with Jesus' love. How ready are you to be committed to a lifelong journey of growth in his love and his likeness? I'm going to pray. And I want to invite you to feel free to use the words of my prayer as yours. Or you could reword my prayer, make it your own. You can pray your own prayer. But I invite you to welcome God's Spirit to work in your life to make you more like Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. Here and now, examine me. Evaluate me and know my anxious thoughts. Search me. Not what I think I am. Not what other people think I am. Not what I would like to be. Search me, Holy Spirit. Examine me as I really am. Examine me in the light of who Jesus is. Multiply your mercy, grace, and love to me.
convict me where I'm wrong, correct my false ideas. Redirect my life where I've gone astray, wandered off. Change the way I see myself. Change the way I look at others. Give me Jesus' eyes of love. Help me to see where I've been in rebellion against you, even if I wasn't aware of it. Transform me. Set me free. In Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Thank you for connecting with us. Whether you've connected with us online or on site, if you haven't joined the Champions of Hope Facebook group, uh, I encourage you to do that. We uh, share from time to time some unique uh, content and there are opportunities to connect with folks who are also infusing people with the hope of Jesus. Jesus sends us out to follow him giving our lives for the world, introducing others to Holy Spirit's powerful love involves from time to time weeping and wrestling as Jesus does. You are sent to seek in the power of the Holy Spirit. Go with Jesus.